Nobody's talking about how Notre Dame did because honestly nobody cares how Notre Dame did. I just played. All right. Hey, I'd like to welcome Pastor Lee back. He went and visit. He went and dropped his youngest um, off at school in Arizona, and then he went and visited Joy and Mike out in Minnesota. And so he brought the heat from Arizona and the humidity from Minnesota. So we can thank him for bringing all that back with him. Thank you. Uh, so over the last month and a half or so, we have been slowly working through the book of Colossians. And as, as we know, hopefully by this point, Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he didn't found himself. Rather, he brought a guy named Epaphras to the Lord. He introduced him to the gospel message. And Epaphras went back home to Colossae, which is a city that he lived in, and he shared the good news there. And a whole bunch of people began to give their hearts to Jesus. And through that, a new church was born. But as often happens people came into the church with their own preconceived ideas and they began to suggest things that were not in alignment with the gospel. They were suggesting things like, you know, Jesus is a good start, but there are some other spiritual entities that if you worship them as well, you can, you can kind of take some extra steps towards spiritual fullness. Or, you know, Jesus is a good start, but there's a lot of things that we need to do to kind of beat our body into submission so that we can reach that full spiritual maturity. And so Paul writes this letter to the city of Colossae, kind of refuting a whole bunch of their false teachings, but more so than that, just hammering home the gospel message that there is absolutely nothing that we can do on our own strength to make ourselves righteous. Last week, we, we looked at the first half of, uh, second, of, of Colossians chapter 2. We looked at the first half. Today, we're going to look at the second half of that. But let me just remind us really quickly of what we talked about last week. Two points that I want to hammer home. The first is that Jesus doesn't allow us to choose parts of him to accept. We can't ex- simply accept him as Savior and not also accept him as Lord. Kind of like the way that I can't say, Kathy, I take you for the good things, but not the hard ones. I take you in richer, but not poorer. When I'm sick and you're healthy, you know, all that kind of stuff. If we want Jesus Christ to truly be our Lord, that we need to allow him to be the Lord of our lives. We can't say, hey, Jesus, come in and clean me up. Just don't go into this room. Don't, don't go there because that's my special private place. If he's going to be our Lord, he needs to be the Lord of everything. The second point is, is perfectly illustrated by this cross. We read that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's perfect righteous standard. To sin literally is an archery term that means to miss the bullseye. We've all missed. We've all fallen short. We all deserve eternal separation from God, namely death. But God wasn't willing to simply leave us in that. And so he took upon himself the penalty due us. When Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to the cross, he took our sins with him and he nailed them to the cross, declaring victory over sin and death. And when he rose from the dead three days later, that was God's triumphant victory cry of even the grave could not keep him down. That is the good news that we've been looking at. But I've got a confession to make. I totally recognize that God has saved me. I recognize that Jesus died for my sins, but unfortunately, my sins don't seem to want to die. Maybe I'm the only one, but I doubt it. 
I know that my sins may be nailed to the cross, but it feels like they still are alive and well in me. I may be a new creation, the old had gone and the new come, but man, do I still feel like I'm struggling again and again with the same junk. I still deal with anger and pride and lust and, and, and sometimes greed and, and the need to be accepted. And so I become this social chameleon for other people. Tell me what you want me to be, I'll be that kind of thing. I hate it. I kind of feel a little bit like Paul does in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do over and over. And the things that I do want to do, I don't even do those. And, and I would imagine that I'm not the only one who kind of identifies with that statement. Just feel like, how long? And there are people in the Colossian church, no doubt, who are feeling the same thing. They had heard the good news, the gospel message that we could be saved because of what Jesus did. And yet they were still struggling in their sin. They were still struggling to kind of put themselves, that, that sinful nature to death. And as what so often happens with human beings, when we can't naturally get control over something, we try to gain control over it. We go to things that we think can give us control. For some of us, that response is, I feel broken. I don't like this feeling. So I'm going to numb out. I'm going to go to my drug of choice. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's accumulation. Maybe it's climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe it's a relationship. I can never be single because whenever I'm single, I'm alone with myself and I don't like what I see, so I need somebody else to tell me I'm okay. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's exercise. We run to these things to numb out, to dull the pain, to somehow make ourselves feel like we're okay. To just shut the shame up for a little bit. But there are some of us who aren't willing to run down that rabbit trail. And instead we run in exactly the opposite direction. Rather than maybe giving in to immorality and just trying to numb it out, we run towards hyper-morality. We try to clean ourselves up. John Coe calls it moralism. Our attempts to clean ourselves up and make ourselves good enough. So we run to things that we think can somehow give us control. And we take the scriptures. We take the encouragements of a loving father who says, be careful of this. Don't run to that. Don't give yourself into this. And we turn those encouragements and those exhortations from our Father in heaven into rules and regulations and thou shalt not. And it's almost like we... Who took my ladder? Who t where, where did you take it, Lee? All right. Come on. All right. Welcome back. All right. Little bit too tidy. All right. This was there for a reason. I need to start clearing my messages with him beforehand. We turn the rules, we, we, we turn scripture into a whole bunch of rules and regulations and traditions that we then turn into ladders that we think are somehow able to give us righteousness, right? As if we could somehow build a ladder of religion high enough and each rung is a different thou shalt not or thou shall. So, you know, don't allow addiction in anything. Okay, I got that wrong. Uh, I'm working on that one. Okay, uh, don't date somebody who's not another believer. Okay, I can do that. All right, I'm fine. Don't root for the Yankees or the Raiders. That's an important one right there. 
And then, the, then the thou shalt, you know, okay, I need to read at least five chapters of scripture a day and I need to go to church every weekend. And I know this step says not to step on it, but man, I got way higher to go before I get to God. Don't worry, mother's in here. Okay. I am a trained professional. And then, oh, you know what? I really am, I need to, I need to pray at every meal and maybe even fast once a month. So we'll just, we'll just, okay, fine, Robin, fine, <laughs> whatever. And we turn scripture into a whole bunch of rules and regulations that then become a ladder that we think can help us climb our way into God's good graces, climb our way to righteousness. But here's the problem. This is legalism. And the problem happens because all of these things, all of these rungs may be very good policies, especially the one about the sports teams that you root for. They may be all very valid policies for life. But when we begin to look to them to give us life, when we begin to look to them as prerequisites or hoops for God's love, our thinking becomes fatally flawed because these can never give us life. This is legalism. Can you throw the definition for legalism? Thank you. You're way ahead of me. Legalism is treating biblical standards of conduct as rules that we need to be, that need to be kept by our own efforts in order to earn God's favor. Let me say that one more time because I think a lot of us wrestle with this. Legalism or moralism, however you want to say it, is simply treating biblical standards of conduct as rules to be kept by our own efforts in order to earn God's favor. This is exactly the problem that the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, got in trouble with Jesus for. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Yes, I understand that we are in the book of Colossians. We will get there momentarily. But in the book of Mark, and throughout the gospel messages, Jesus is constantly getting into conflict with these Pharisees because they are so hyper-fixated on the rules and on their religious ladders. They've turned their faith into religion, into a bunch of rules. And they're constantly trying to get other people to keep the rules. And in Mark chapter 7, they have one of many conflicts with Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 1 of the book of Mark. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, meaning that they were unwashed, meaning... These, these fishermen didn't actually wash their hands before they ate their meals. You know, terrible. The mothers are cringing right now. The Pharisees and all the Jews, and I love Mark because he's writing to a bunch of non-Jews, and so he's constantly kind of giving them a little background information. So the Pharisees and all of the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash because somebody may have actually, you know... A Gentile, a non-believer, somebody who's unclean might have actually touched something that I touched, so I don't want to be made unclean. So they do all of these washings. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to, to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And Jesus replied, and now he quotes Isaiah, the prophet, he said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, about you mask wearers. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. 
you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, Jesus railed on the Pharisees for two reasons. The first reason, because they placed their faith into rules, but the rules didn't force their hearts to follow. They basically made it about traditions and following the legalistic rules, but their hearts didn't have to follow. They could have washed their hands until their skin was raw and still had unclean hearts. They could have tithed 10, 20, 50% of their income and still be consumed by greed. They could have avoided sexual activity outside of marriage their entire lives and, then, and still been consumed by lust. They could read chapters of the Bible every day, go to church every weekend, pray at every meal, and still have little to no relationship with their God. Rules do not make us righteous. Rules simply make us religious and self-reliant. I'm going to say that again because that's an important one. Rules do not make us more righteous. They simply make us religious and self-reliant. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had become. Religious experts. Completely self-reliant. With little or no relationship with their God. So that when the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, was right in front of them, God in the flesh, they couldn't see Him. Because He didn't match their expectations and He didn't meet their rules. So the first reason why Jesus came down hard on the Pharisees is because they had separated the regulations of God from the heart of God. And they kept the regulations, but they missed the heart. The second reason why he came down hard on the Pharisees, the second danger of religiousness, legalism, moralism, whatever term you want to use, is that it places the emphasis on rules and upon our own abilities. We get into the mindset that I can somehow clean myself up. If I can just come up, maybe this ladder is not big enough. Maybe I need more rungs. Maybe I just need more religious. Maybe it's, I'm just not trying hard enough. I need to try harder. And the focus, it takes the focus off of the cross and places it onto our religion. Jesus never came to start a religion. Jesus came to usher in a new season of grace. As Paul says, it is by grace we've been saved, through faith in Christ, not by works, so that nobody, nobody can boast, look what I've done. I have made myself righteous in God's eyes. I, have, I am perfect. Not a single one of us can make that boast. The Pharisees were also missing the point of what religion was, or what God's rules and regulations and all of the, the Ten Commandments and things were there for in the first place. Because in their mind, it was there to be a ladder that we could climb into God's presence. But in fact, it was very, very different. Can you throw Galatians chapter 7 up there? This is Paul writing in Galatians chapter 7. He says, Before faith came, before faith in Jesus Christ came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge 
to lead us to Christ. It was not put in charge to help us climb into God's presence. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Here's the point that Paul is making there. The law, the rules, the thou shalt nots were never intended to make us more righteous. The law was put in place to almost act as a mirror revealing our desperate need for a savior. To show us just how screwed up and just how broken we really are. It's kind of like I I spent a little bit of time in my dentist's office in the last month or so. Really good time. And they go in there. The first thing they do is they take you into a room and they kind of take x-rays of all of your teeth, right? And then they start explaining what the x-rays show. And they're like, okay, well, here's a cavity. Here's a cavity. You know, this is something you need to be aware of here. The x-ray is not intended to heal our cavities. The x-ray reveals just how badly we need to see the dentist. In the same way, the law was never intended to bring health and wholeness. It was there to show us just how badly we needed Christ. That's the purpose of the law. To lead us into Christ's presence. Not to try to climb our way up through sheer grit and determination but on our knees in submission saying, I need you. And yet, our human tendency is to read this or to to raise our children to be just a bunch of really good rule followers as if that somehow makes us righteous by our own strength. And there were a whole bunch of people in the Colossian church who had adopted that mindset. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 2. All of that is intro to our passage this morning. There were people in the Colossian church who had adopted this mindset. Probably a lot of them were actually Jewish. And as they came in, they went, this Jesus. Yeah, I believe he's my Messiah. Sure, I give my heart to him. Absolutely. But there's a whole bunch of Jewish things, traditions, that we need to follow. I mean, the Pharisees themselves took the 615 rules that they found, I'm sorry, 613 rules that they found in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and then they added an extra 1,500 rules around those to act as fences to protect them so that you would never even get close enough to a rule to break it. And there were a lot of people who came in going, yeah, I believe in the cross, I believe in Christ, that's great, but... We have some traditions that we need to make sure you guys are following as well. If you really want to have the fullness that God holds out to you, you need to also climb this ladder. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to read, starting in verse 16, and we're going to read through the passage. And then we'll go back and kind of take it piece by piece. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, now I want to stop for just a second. Anytime you read, therefore... The question you want to ask is what? (laughs) What's the therefore? Okay, it's obviously suggesting that something came before that this is building off of. And so, although we're only going to focus on verses 16 through the end of the chapter, let's just back up a couple of verses to stuff we looked at last week to get a running start so we understand what the there is for. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ did for us by taking our sins and putting them to death on the cross, paying the penalty so that we could have relationship with God. We are saved by grace. Clear? That's the gospel message that Paul has been hammering this whole time. Therefore, in light of the fact that we are new creations because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done, therefore do not let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are all a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility or in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use and are based on merely human commands and teachings. Now such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in actually getting us to stop sinning. Okay, so let's go through this really quickly. We're going to kind of go through these, these verses here. Verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. There were people in the, in the Colossian church who were saying, listen, you can't go out into the marketplace and buy meat there because you don't know if it was sacrificed to idols in some pagan temple and that would defile you so you can't eat meat. And you should not touch wine or alcohol of any sort. Yeah, maybe it's not biblical, but we're just going to say, you know, we're going to make a quick judgment here. No alcohol. Don't touch it. Now, some of you guys have made that decision, and I, I applaud you for that. But to make a hard and fast rule is to turn it into a legal rung rather than actually having a relationship with God. If that is a protective mechanism for you, I don't touch alcohol because I've, I've experienced it. Absolutely absolutely support that but to turn it into a hard and fast rule that nobody may touch alcohol makes it into a legal hoop a religious hoop for us to jump through don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath day there the jews had lots of observances they had their annual pilgrimages to jerusalem for yom kippur the day of atonement the Um, the the Feast of Tabernacles and these things that once a year they would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate. They also had their monthly new moon celebrations when the the moon became a new one and they would kind of remember God in that. And then they also finally had their weekly Sabbaths, so annually, monthly, and weekly observances. And there were people saying, listen, if you truly are a follower of Yahweh, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you have to observe these religious days these are holy days they are there for a reason this is our tradition to keep these things they were instituted by god don't you dare ignore them and paul's simply saying wait a minute 
All of these things, verse 17, these are simply a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All of those days pointed to a God who loves us and would redeem us. He has done that through Jesus Christ. All of those holy days were pointed to Christ. Now that we have a relationship with him, for you to say, if you don't keep them exactly the way that we keep them, you are ostracized from God's people. You can't have relationship with God completely does damage to the whole point. You've made it about the days and not about Christ. Are they valuable? They can be. When we understand the point of them, in the same way that taking communion or getting baptized can be valuable. But when we begin to look at communion or baptism as a hoop to jump through and saying you can't have relationship with God if you don't do this, that places way too much emphasis on a symbol and not nearly enough emphasis on Jesus himself. It makes it a religious hoop. Is there value to it? Yes. But not when we overemphasize it and turn it into a ladder. They are simply a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights in false humility and in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. There are some people in the Colossian church who said, yeah, Jesus is a wonderful spiritual being who can provide us access into God's presence, but he's not the only one. There are other spiritual beings, and if we worship them, if we know their names, if we know them and we make sacrifices to them, then they can help us get even further. Jesus is like one of, one of many stepping stones towards spiritual fullness. There were other people who were saying, no, 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 worshiping of other spiritual beings isn't the way to go. Ascetism, not, not, not the aesthetic, but literally beating of your body into submission. Because we believe that the spirit is holy, but the flesh is broken and weak. And if we can simply beat our flesh into submission, that's when, that's when you will really experience intimacy with God. And so they would literally fast for weeks on end. And they would take these whips and they would whip themselves to punish their flesh. Anything that their bodies hungered for, they said, no, you can't have it. And they made rules about it, thinking that that would somehow draw them closer to God. Now, both of these camps, those who worshiped angels and those who were beating their bodies, both of them said, oh my goodness, I've had these wonderful, amazing experiences. I've seen visions. I've done all these things. And Paul's simply saying, you've completely missed the point. You've made it about actions. You have disconnected yourself from Christ, the head of the body, the head of the church, and you've made it about other spiritual beings or you've made it about your own efforts to whip your flesh into shape. You can't do it. You're missing the point. And then he tells them what the point is. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? And now he begins to kind of repeat some of the rules that they've been saying. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All of these religious rungs that they have come up with. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, 
with their self-imposed worship and their false humility, literally the beating of your body, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You know the danger of rules? The first thing is, they cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to place our eyes onto ourselves. I kind of think of, a, I think of Peter getting out of the boat, right? Jesus, if that's you, tell me to get out of the boat. And he goes, come on, get out. So Peter climbs out, and I love that Peter was actually willing to do it. I mean, all the other disciples are huddled in there, and he's like, come on, let's walk. And he gets out on the water, and he starts walking towards Jesus, and he's like, ha, ha, And then he starts looking around, and he sees the wind and the waves, and I know in his mind he goes, I can't actually walk on water. And all of a sudden he begins to sink. Why? Because he started focusing on his own abilities. He started focusing on everything else rather than focusing on Christ. When he was focused on Christ, it wasn't him who was holding himself up above the water. It was Christ who held him up. But as he begins to focus on the other things and takes his focus off of Christ, he begins to remember, I can't do this. And in fact, he can't. The danger of focusing on the rules is we take our eyes off of the cross and we begin to think that it's up to us and our own sheer grit and determination to fix ourselves. That's the danger. The second thing is that we are simply incapable of fixing ourselves. We cannot do it. It doesn't matter how hard you do it. And the danger is that we would actually experience a little bit of momentary success. How many of you guys have said, I'm going to stop doing that? Maybe it's stopping smoking cigarettes. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's whatever. You know, I'm just going to stop doing this through sheer grit and determination. And you hold out for a while. And you hold out for a while. And then suddenly the hunger starts to return. And you fight it for a little bit. And then you stumble. And what happens when you stumble back into it? Oh, man. The shame and the guilt. Now, there are some of you maybe out there who were so determined that you stopped cold turkey. My guess is, even if that's you and you stopped cold turkey, all of that, whatever that was, just went and found a different thing. I remember last year for, um, (laughs) what was it? It was, well, here's an example. I used to um, give in to pornography a lot when I was younger. And I decided one day, I'm done. I'm not going to give in to this any longer. And I started through sheer grit and determination to try to stop myself. And as I did that, all of that junk and that, that need to kind of satisfy something within, within me, just it was almost like I kicked over a rock and all of the little buggies, I didn't actually deal with the sin bugs. They just went and scattered under a different rock. And all of a sudden I found myself fixated on food. And I, you know, I can go into detail more about that at a different time. But it, they just, I, it was just my thing changed. It didn't actually deal with the brokenness in my heart. It changed. And you start dealing with that and all of a sudden the sin stuff just starts going under some other rock. We can maybe affect change for a brief time by our own sheer grit and determination, but we can never truly deal with the brokenness of our heart by our own strength. And if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to think that you somehow have to clean yourself up enough to be worthy to come into God's presence, then you have completely missed the point of the gospel message. It's kind of like some of these people who hire a house cleaner to come to their house and clean up their house. 
and the house cleaner, before they come over, they start looking around and going, dude, this is horrible. I am embarrassed. And so, rather than waiting for the house cleaner to get there, they start cleaning up themselves, and they start tidying up, and they start throwing things into closets. You know, maybe they just won't open that door. And trying to somehow get their house in order before the house cleaner gets there as if, yeah, that's not the point. The house cleaner is there to clean us up. Or like a wounded dog that runs off into the woods to hide and lick our wounds. That's how we approach things. In order to be able to come into God's presence, I need to clean myself up. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And until I get myself in un, in, under control, God doesn't want anything to do with me. And that is the antithesis, the exact opposite of the gospel message. Because while we were still in our sin, Jesus Christ died for us so that we could come just as we are, broken beings before the cross and saying, God, I need help. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot clean ourselves up. God knows that. And that's the reason he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. We will never be able to climb a religious ladder into righteousness. That's not what it's there for. And so to kind of sum everything up, grab your outline here. I'll just read this last paragraph on your outline. In summary, we have before us two pathways, two approaches to dealing with our sin. One way is composed of rules and restrictions, and it depends upon sheer grit and determination. The other pathway is towards the cross upon which our sins have been nailed. It's a pathway of a relationship rather than religion, a pathway of grace rather than works a pathway of submission rather than self-reliance. And according to the Bible, it's the only pathway that will have any effect whatsoever. So stop trying to be righteous on your own strength. Stop looking to the rule, to the thou shalt not to save you. They were never intended to do that. The per their purpose was simply to lead you to the only one who can, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to observe a tradition of the church, one that Jesus instituted the night before or the night that he was arrested and ultimately crucified and went to the cross. And like any tradition, we can look at this as something that we have to do to save ourselves, but that would completely miss the whole point of what we've talked about this morning. This is not a prerequisite. This is simply a reminder that points us back to the cross, that points us back into the arms of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm going to invite you to do, we have, we have bread that symbolizes Jesus' body. On the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body that I'm giving for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And he broke the pieces and he handed them out. And then he, he took a cup, one of the cups that you would have for the Passover meal. And he said, this cup represents my blood that is about to be poured out for you on the cross to cover your sins and to atone for them. When you drink this, remember what I've done. This isn't a hoop that we make ourselves righteous through. This is simply a tangible symbol that reminds us that we can't fix ourselves, that all of the ladders of religion that we put together can never be enough. And so let me have the wardens and let me have you guys come on up. And we're simply going to, I'm going to invite you to come up and grab communion. Take it back to your seats and then once everybody has it, we're going to take it together. So as you feel, and, and Pete, why don't you come on up? He's listening. All right.
So let's go ahead and as you feel led, come up and grab the communion elements. So on the night that Jesus Christ was ultimately arrested, uh, he gathered his disciples together and gave them a tangible reminder of what he was about to do. He said, he took a piece of bread and he said, this bread represents my body. He took a piece of it, gave it to each of them. He said, whenever you eat this bread, remember my body that I gave for you. And so let's take now the bread together. And then he took a cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood that I am pouring out freely for the remission of sins. Whenever you drink of this cup, remember what I have done for you. So let's take this cup together. (laughs) And Father, I thank you that you know us well enough that you don't make us earn our way into relationship with you. You don't make us climb the ladders so that we can somehow attain our righteousness, but rather you moved towards us, took on flesh, suffered for us, So that we do not need to continue to be separated from you. So that our sins no longer need to get the last word. So that although we struggle in our brokenness, through you we are made righteous, holy, set apart. You don't look at us and say, you're a sinner. You look at us and say, you are a saint. You don't say, you are banished. You look at us as sons and daughters whom you love, whom you've created in your image, and whom you are continuing to train up so that we can be your ambassadors, so that we can bring the good news of hope and reconciliation to our neighbors, to our family, to our workplaces, to our schools. Thank you that you used broken, flawed vessels Thank you that you love us in spite of us. And I will be the first to say, God, I need more of you. I am hungry for more of you. It is so stinking easy to try to climb ladder rungs or to just throw up my arms and say, forget it. Why even try? And just numb out. And so we are hungry for more of you, recognizing that we will never ever experience hope or full health and healing apart from you. So would you draw near to us? I pray for this next Saturday as there are going to be, I anticipate hundreds of people that will gather in this room as we together seek how we can cultivate more intimate relationships with you. I pray that many of my brothers and sisters sitting here today will be back here with me on Saturday. For that seminar. But at the end of the day, we say, God, have your way with us. 
we recognize that we did not save ourselves. We can never save ourselves. We can never make ourselves righteous. And that is good news because he never intended for us to do it. The ladders, the laws were never intended to lead us into righteousness. They were intended to lead us into your arms so that you can clean us up, so that you can heal us, and so then you can send us back out to be your ambassadors. Have your way with us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship.